This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake, and somewhere in Western Los Angeles. Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. And their mission was to create a facility that treated addicts and alcoholics with connection and compassion rather than control. They have decades and decades and decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. They have a facility that makes sure your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is critical when you're kicking heroin or crack or alcohol or benzos. A good detox is always the best. A comfortable detox is always preferable. And they have amenities you wouldn't believe. Surfing, equine therapy, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, and much, much more. Most importantly, everyone who I've ever met that went to Aloe said they really cared, which is the most meaningful part. So if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I highly recommend going to Aloe. All right, everybody, we have a new sponsor. They are called Seven Thank Yous. Their website is the number seven thankyous.com. That's the number seven, thankyous.com. Close your eyes and think about someone you always wanted to say thank you to for having an impact on your life. It could be someone who got you through hard times, kept you clean, a teacher, a coach, a mentor, etc. Seven thank yous will help you find that person. And on their website, they make it easy for you to make a super professional and heartfelt polished video to send to that person you want to say thank you to. It's the ultimate gift of gratitude that people will never forget. Go to seventhankyous.com now and give the gift of gratitude by creating one of the most special personalized gifts anyone can receive. Again, that's seventhankyous.com, which is the number seven thankyous.com. Show someone your gratitude with seventhankyous.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Clean Cause. Clean Cause is an amazing tasting, sparkling yerba mate beverage. Delicious. It puts purpose behind your daily pick-me-up. They are certified USDA organic and offer low and zero calorie options. Do the most with 160 milligrams of naturally sourced caffeine. And that's a lot of caffeine. If you like caffeine, the yerba mate style is delicious from Clean Cause. But most importantly, at Clean Cause, 50% of their profits support addiction recovery, which is a huge deal if you're an addict, if you're in recovery. 
You want to support somebody that supports you. It is simply better caffeine. Use code DOPEY for 15% off your next order from cleancause.com. That is cleancause.com. Use the DOPEY code 15% off your delicious, sparkling yerba mate beverage. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Clean Living Apparel. Clean Living makes really, really cool NA apparel, addiction recovery-inspired T-shirts, hoodies, and other cool gifts for the everyday recovering addict in your life. I bought a cool mug. They have tons of cool stuff. Clean Living Apparel was created by John G. from South Carolina. His plan was to develop stuff that people like us would like without breaking our anonymity. It's a chance for us to let our freak flag fly without divulging too much. If you want a discount on it, you go to cleanlivingapparel.com, use the promotional code NAROCKS, and, uh, and buy some cool shit from Clean Living Apparel. Support addicts in recovery as they support you. And once again, you'll be saving with the code NAROCKS at cleanlivingapparel.com. Buy something. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Soberlink. Because at Soberlink... Somebody cares about your recovery. Unfortunately, relapse is so common, especially when it comes to alcohol, because it is widely available and highly prevalent in many social settings. That's why having true accountability and a deterrent from drinking is so important for staying sober. Soberlink has been empowering and helping people with alcohol use disorder since 2011 and is trusted by hundreds of treatment facilities. The Soberlink system consists of a portable handheld device that documents proof of sobriety in real time, keeping you connected to your family, friends, sponsor, treatment professionals, recovery coaches, or anyone else who worries about your well-being. As an exclusive offer to our listeners, you go to soberlink.com slash dopey and you get 50% off your device when you write them mention dopey for the 50 bucks off. Do it for someone that cares. Let Soberlink help you to stay off of the sauce. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Evolution Accounting. Evolution Accounting and Consulting is a full-service accounting firm that can help you with your taxes, your bookkeeping, your payroll, and almost any other business need you may have. Thanks to their technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. When you allow them to take this off of your plate, you'll be free to focus on what you love to do. Perhaps more important than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. Fortunately... He's been in recovery for years now and knows the struggle as well as the success. Use promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. And finally, this episode of Dopey, and most importantly, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by you guys in the Dopey Nation through Patreon. I cannot thank you enough. Uh, did a big video on Patreon this week with my dad. He read a, a bunch of one-star reviews. It's a video. You can see his handsome face. Um, it's super helpful when you guys support us at Patreon. We're setting up a ton more 
video content to the $10 level. This week is the $5 Patreon Zoom. So if you're not at the $5 level, you should go. It's the super stash word competition and online kind of dopey nation fellowship. Check it out. www.patreon.com slash dopey podcast. The Patreon makes dopey run. So please support the dopey Patreon if you love the show. There's a ton of gear available at dopeypodcast.com. Hoodies and T-shirts and tank tops and crop tops. I have a few Oyve snapbacks left. I got a ton of stickers. If you want stickers, you just Venmo me at Dopey Podcast. Whatever you Venmo me, I'll send with your address. I will send you the appropriate amount of stickers. All right, enough with the fucking ads. Here is the fucking show. And welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave. And last weekend, we hit 6 million fucking downloads. And uh, I'm incredibly proud of that. And uh, we hit it the day after the anniversary of Chris's death, the three-year anniversary of Chris's death, which is like the most bittersweet thing ever. It's So many people were, were mentioning to me that they loved it when Chris used to talk about downloads and me and Chris would go on and on with each other about the downloads. And, uh, it was super fun. And, uh, I try not to get too hung up on it anymore. As Chris would say, it's whatevs, but, uh, 6 million is a lot of whatevs and I'm very, very proud of it. And I know that Chris would have been proud of it too. So, uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Um, I still love making the show, thank God, so we're still making it, and I'm super excited about this week's show. We have fucking Danny Bonaducci from Breaking Bonaducci and the Partridge Family and a million radio shows and podcasts. This guy is a, he's a maniac. He's a serious, dopey legend, and it was an honor and a pleasure to have him on the show. But before we get to Danny Bonaducci, I just want to tell you guys about what's been going on. And I know you guys have endured a lot of ads, but the ads keep the dopey happy, joyous, and free, so we need the fucking ads. So I apologize that there's so many ads, but support those companies if you can. That would be terrific if you could support the companies that we advertise for. I've been killing myself at work. Like, because COVID has, you know, I guess COVID is ramping up, but because we've kind of taken a dip in COVID, the number of parties that I have to cater at has gone off the charts. And last week, me and my friend and coworker toast drove to Pennsylvania to do a corporate cutting event in a a town called Newtown square, which is just outside of Philly. And I love toast. If you guys don't remember, toast was a, an ex heroin dealer turned Katz's employee who has the same birthday as me, whom I love. And me and him drove all the way to basically Philly and we drove back and um, he drops me off in Jamaica, Queens to catch the Long Island Railroad. And I'm like fucking beat up, you know, every morning, like, like for those parties, I have to wake up at four 30 in the morning to catch a five 30 train to get to Katz's by seven 30. It's just 
ridiculous. And by the end of a day like that, of a commute like that, I'm like, done. So I go into a store and I buy a seltzer and I come out and, uh, and there's, I, I don't know how to say this to you guys to make it so you understand, but there's dudes on the street outside of the Long Island Railroad in Jamaica. I want to say it's Jamaica Avenue. I don't even know what street it is in Queens. But when I tell you there's guys on the street with weed in front of them, like it's a flea market, like it's a weed flea market, like it's really like that. They have little fucking, they look like 20 bags to me. Looks like, you know, like kind of like nice grams just out there on a blanket. There's just dudes sitting on a scooter with a blanket covered with 20 bags of weed. And like they were standing in front of this uh, Jamaican restaurant called Golden Crust. And I always wanted to get Golden Crust to take home with me. And, uh, and, I, and I, the guy looks at me and he's like, yo, you want some weed? And I'm like, no, thanks. I just want to see what kind of Jamaican food they have. And I, and I step away from the weed guy and I get out. And then there's another weed guy with just Bud in the street. And next to him are cops, you know. And this is the new reality. This is decriminalized marijuana in New York City, which is something I've always fantasized about. But, like, when I see it, it just, like, it wasn't that triggering, okay? The first go around, it wasn't that triggering. So I go home just like kind of remarking to myself, wow, what a crazy world it is. And the next day I have another cutting event, another catering event, and this time it's with uh, Jose. So I started to tell Jose the story and I decided to record it. So this is me and Jose. So I've noticed a lot of people in Manhattan selling weed on the street and I was telling my friend, my ex-compadre, Jose, about that and he told me that uptown in the Bronx where he lives... Uh, something similar happened with a, a character called Dede. So, Jose, do you want to tell the Dopey Nation the story? Yeah, why not? Why not? Well, I went to the store to buy... Jose's a terrible stoner, by the way. <laughs> but I was going to the store, you know, to buy Duchess, my regular shit. And this guy just keeps behind me. He keeps saying, yo, I got this good stuff. I got this good stuff. I'm like, yo, leave me alone, man. Like, I don't want any of shit. I'm good. I got my shit. So he's like, yo, I got this, I got this purple. I'm like... Yeah, yeah. Have you smoked this? I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, but it's okay. I don't want it. So he comes in. Because you figured he wanted to sell it to you. No, nah, I just figured some bum. I figured I don't know you, so I'm not going to buy nothing from you. So he comes, and he says, well, here, I got this purple. Just take Hello, sir. Somebody just interrupted us for us to make them lunch. But now back to the story. Well, he tells me, here, take it. So I'm like, I look at the guy. I'm like, I don't know, man. You know, you're not taking me for nobody. So he showed Hold on, me. hold on. What was your concern when you say you're not taking My me? My concern was something mixed or some haraka stuff, like some really disgusting shit. Fucked me up. What is this harakas you speak of? That chippy chippy weed. I <laughs> know good of bud. The swag. Yeah, all them seeds. You know, I thought it was that. So he shows me. And when harakas. I say, harakas, no boy, no What does that boy. mean? Harakas basura. See, si. Basura, if you don't know, means garbage. <laughs> well, so then he gives it to me. He's like, here, you don't have to pay me for this one. I know you're going to come back. So take this eighth. And try it, and if you like it, you call me back. I said, uh, I looked at it, looked at it okay. So I said, I'll take it. He says, well, my name is Dede. I'm like, Dede is what? <laughs> I said, right, Dede, I got you, man, I got you. And he gave me his number, and we kept the moving. And listen, Dopey Nation. It was totally random on the street. Jose just showed me the picture of Dede's butt, and it's really the, the serious purple business. Yeah. 
Would you say it tasted like purple? Yeah, it tasted like flowery, like purplish. Yeah, it did. Purplish flavor from Jose. Thank you, Dopey Nation. Thank you. Thank you, Jose. You're welcome, man. Very nice work. (laughs) Nice. So it seems like decriminalized marijuana, it's like things are ramping up in the city. The next day, me and Jose went on another cutting event, and he busted out like this prepackaged bud with uh, the Kool-Aid logo on it. And it's like, it's just like de- decriminalized or fuck decriminalized recreational marijuana in New York City is going to like, it's not going to be the death of me, but it's crazy. It's a cultural shift, like where people are smoking. Weed. People always smoked weed, but now they're selling it on the street with impunity. They're, they're, they're selling prepackaged shit. There's going to be bud stores in Manhattan, and I have to live with it. We're going to get back to this. But here is a, you know, dopey legend, maniac, fucking cultural icon, Danny Bonaducci. And I'm blown away. I'm blown away at this guest. I'm blown away. I, don't, I, I, wanna, I wanna list some of your, your accomplishments because you're too big for me. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm too big for the room, man. You're too big for me, man. He's, he's, <laughs> he's a, a third degree black belt, not a first or second, Correct. but third degree. Nope. An ordained right. minister. We'll, Correct. We'll say a former professional wrestler. Yep. A sometimes stand up comic. Yeah. A drug addict. Oh, yeah. Alcoholic. Yep. Actor. Profound actor. That's me. Radio host, big time radio host and author. And his name is Danny Bonaducci. Welcome to the show, Danny. I'm sorry, man. I relapsed while you were doing that setup. Fuck. Did I have a minute? Did I get a minute of recovery with you? All right. Sure you can. Well, it's an honor to have you on this thing. It's my pleasure. Actually, I was asked by a really dear friend of mine, a big Hollywood agent uh, named Richard Lawrence, and he said that it was kind of important that I should do the show. So here I am. Well, that's nice. I like that important people think that that you should do this. So I I really, really appreciate it. And I'm a big fan of yours. I I was a big fan of the Partridge family. I'm a little younger than the Partridge family, but I was into it in reruns. And I, you, were- you know, my, my wife is one of the most well-rounded, lovely women, and she is too young for the Partridge family. She made an effort to watch them. She, uh, my, my wife, uh, Amy, is a big fan in general. Fangirl thing is like what she does, and she's one of mine, which I really like. So when you met her, like, how did you meet her? Uh, I met her, my uh, wife at the time, had asked for a divorce, and I'm, I'm just terrible at being alone. I don't know if you know this or not, but I married my very first wife the uh, uh, night that I met her, and I married my second wife, which lasted uh, 17 years and two children, also on the first date. Amy is my very first wife that I actually got to know first, and uh, that, that's a story on wives. Well, I, I, I'm a big fan of you on the Howard Stern show too. So I've heard a lot. Yeah, Howard's one of the three or four people that can claim some sort of responsibility for my radio career. When I was on the Stern show the very first time, uh, we just kind of, to be honest with you, knocked it out of the park. And, uh, but that was it. There was tape of me knocking out of the park. And then Mark and Brian in Los Angeles, I did their show also did pretty well, but nothing really came of that. And then I did a show in Philadelphia, the Welch and Woody show. 
And uh, I went into the room, 6 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning. I came out of the room, and the general manager of the radio station would have said, you know, would you like to stay here and do that for a living? And I said, absolutely, because I had been living in my car up until that point. So I was pretty happy to get in radio. And it was uh, the offer was $75,000 a year, and he acted embarrassed by the low number. I had never seen in my own, the partner's family paid me $400 a week. I'd never seen $75,000 a year, and I'd never seen lengthy employment. So I jumped at the chance. That was 1988, and I've been on the, uh, on the radio the last 32 years. When you started it, I mean, that's amazing. When you started it, did you know it was something that you were interested in, or were you like, fuck it, it's a job? No, I knew it was something I was really, I'm, just because I had never, uh, you know, I just started being on the radio shows and had no experience when I got hired. I was aware of the greats, you know, there's no missing, you go, uh, you know, you go from Edward R. Murrow and then you run that gambit all the way up to Stern. No, I knew right away this was a, a vocation and a, a job for me, a real career for me. And it was, like I said, 32 years on the air. It's amazing. And, and, and I think Although that- speaking about the uh, drunk and drugs and things like that, that we've done have been all screwed up. Uh, that radio show I told you about in 1988, where they hired me on the spot, I got arrested for cocaine in Florida in the middle of my contract there. They were kind enough to send me to rehab. It, it didn't take. And then I got drunk on the air and they fired me. So my very first job, I was fired for being drunk. So it was kind of a nightmare. Well, that's what happens, right? That's, that's totally yeah. what happens to us. Uh, you, you get a, you get a good thing and you, and you destroy it. Um, you, yep. you came of age in, uh, you were a kid in the seventies, right? You were, you were a kid on yeah. the Partridge family and it's this, uh, I love just the whole thing. I mean, it's fake cow cells, but I just love the groovy rock and roll family. I like the songs. I mean, I don't know if that makes me a pussy, but I actually like the Partridge family songs. Well, let's get back to where we're the fake cow cells. Is that what you said? Well, it was based on the cow cells. The cow cells so, were too ugly, deal with right? that. That's exactly right. They were were, were a very unattractive fan, yes. They were, but I'm actually a big fan of theirs. Did you see the documentary on them by any chance? No, what's it called? Okay, uh, hold on a second. Honey, which brother was it that went... Oh, I figured she forgets his name too, and she usually knows this kind of stuff. So they're doing this thing, and they're all scattered around the globe, and they don't know where anybody is. They do the interview uh, about everything. That brother is not there. He died in Katrina. During the filming of that. And now, if you like him, that's terrible. If you don't like him, what a lucky break to have that happen. Oh, my God. But that is just crazy. 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 What was the Cowsill's biggest song? Uh, you want me to check with the expert? Honey, what was the Cowsill's biggest song? They had one song that I liked. I can't. I love the flower girl. I'm in love with the flower girl. That one. That was a big hit. Right. And you walk in that place, and obviously you don't walk into the Partridge family a drug addict, but you kind of walk out of it one, right? Yeah. Uh, well, no, the Partridge family ended in 1974, so I was 14. Uh, to my people, shock, especially my wife, who has seen me drink to not only oblivion, but to where make very big, big mistakes, that really didn't come on until I was about... 25 or six, I got through all my weird uh, high school years and they were weird, my man. Uh, and uh, even after that, it's not like I didn't touch it. I just didn't become addicted to anything until I was in my 20s. How was the seed planted? Like the addiction seed? Because I, I mean, I had read that when you got out of, I mean, the Partridge Family is the number one show in the world. 
you know, you're one of the first most important child stars on television, which has got to be very stressful. Um, And then it's over and like you were homeless, right? Not, not immediately. Uh, You know, I misunderstood what I read. Explain it to me, please. All right. uh, Part job is over and I don't know. It's over. I just assume, you know, the part show is done, so I'm going to do whatever's next. I'll do whatever television series is next. So I was an optimist for at least a couple of years. Then I went to this uh, 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 high school, really private high school, had 80 students all the way from uh, 10th grade to graduation or junior high to graduation. And it was a tiny school. So you sat literally right across from whoever was in that class with you. And in my case, that was Michael Jackson. So that was weird right there. He wasn't as weird as he got, but he was certainly odd. And there were other celebrities and celebrity kids there. And uh, life just seemed okay. Then 1977, I graduate. Uh, I meet a girl. She moves into my house. It was the last thing I had before they repossessed that. And then once they repossess my house and I'm living in the back of my car outside of Grauman's Chinese theater, that's when everything hit the fan. So like, but what were you doing in terms of substances before all that happened? Like, what was it? What, what stirred the drink that made it so all of a sudden using to excess became the norm? Well, everything I've ever done, I have done to excess. When you, uh, when you read that list of credentials on the way and you forgot one, by the way, and a professional wrestler, you know, it's just such an odd life. And pretty soon when I realized, Oh, I can't contain this life. This life is not going to give me what I want. It's not going to give me what I asked for. What drugs do you have? And in my high school, everybody had drugs. You know, who got me more fucked up than any other human being was Christian Brando Marlon's kid. Oh my just, God. just a wild man. And, uh, uh, so we went to his house. I'll tell you a quick story. We went to his house one time and I'd been there several times and I'd seen Marlon, but I never spoke to him or anything. And this guy just walks into his house uninvited. And the weirdest thing about that is cause he's a movie star. Of course, he's got people trying to get into his house. The weird part was that he made it. This guy made There's guard dogs, there's security. I don't know how he did it, but he was in uh, Marlon Brando's house and he gets to the table and Marlon's sitting behind the table and a mountain of food. He's like a Henry VIII movie. <laughs> and uh, he says, uh, the guy gets in, he says, why don't you give to these charities? Why do you always give to the Indians? Why don't you give to these charities? And Marlon Brando, who appears to be naked, maybe he had underwear, I don't know, but he's a 400-pound man sitting at the dining room table in a booth like a restaurant, what appears to be completely naked, so I don't know where, how this happens. He just pulls up a really big gun and points it out of the house and says, uh, Christian, escort this man out, which he does, but like within seconds, this is how you know your life is spinning out of your control. When you're looking at Marlon Brando, he's naked and he has a gun and things seem normal. So that and hanging out with his kid who was just a real serious drug addict. He introduced me to Quaaludes, which I was very grateful for for the next five or six years. But it's just incidents like that that tell me life is not how I envisioned it. I think I'll have a drink. I think I'll take a drug. I think I'll get high with Chris outside. And uh, that's what I did. And once I started in 77, 78, there was no stopping me. I was off to the races. Right. Right. And like, it must've been also just crazy just cause I, I just like went through the Partridge family. Like it was nothing. Cause I wanted to hear how you became a drug addict, but like, it must've been like so exciting to be on that show and be a kid. And it must've been so disappointing for it to end. Well, uh, like I said, yes and no, because I didn't think it was going to end when it went off the air in 1974, 
I didn't think it would be. I thought, you know, I'm going to end up on Modern Family. I'm going to end up on this show. This is how these things are going to go. And it wasn't for a couple of years that I put it together that this isn't how I expected. But the Partridge Family, it wasn't as exciting as you would think. It's a job. It's a grind. Uh, my mom would get me to the set by uh, uh, 7.30 in the morning. They'd do my hair and makeup, which sometimes took a minute. Uh, they'd do my hair and makeup. Then we'd go. And then also, you need to have legally, you need to have three hours of school. And it doesn't count if you do any less than 20 minutes at a time. So sometimes I was in school all day, and I would just leave in time to do my close-up and come back. And the teacher wouldn't count it because it wasn't 20 minutes. So it wasn't all super exciting. Right. Well, I can I can just, for me, I'm going to say it was exciting for me to imagine being you in a fake rock and roll band on TV. Um, but I, I appreciate well, it. Was, it was fun. I appreciate the truth. And my favorite thing about that show, though, was you and uh, Ruben Kincaid, Dave Madden, the dynamic yeah, between the one two. One of my favorite people on earth. It was so sweet, you know, and uh, and he, he played a big role in your in your in your childhood. Right. In your adolescence. Yeah, uh, I was having a fairly rough time at home, uh, physically a rough time with my dad and. Nobody wanted that to happen, and so the, the oddity to me, because I was fairly, fairly used to my position at home, but uh, I just thought I was really popular because Dave Madden, Shirley Jones, and Susan Day all ended up splitting weekends, taking me home, and Dave was the most funny. He lived right on the beach. He had a very cool convertible, just, you know, uh, really my kind of my path into adulthood, if you will. And did he, where was he at when, when the addiction started? Was he still around? Did you circle back? No. Was he checking in or it was over? The only one that ever really saw me in the throes of addiction and doing really dumb stuff would be David Cassidy. Uh, I went on the road with him in a bus, which is weird. I hear I'm going to go on the, the, on the road with David Cassidy in a bus. I assumed it was the school bus. It was not. Right. And David said, because he was trying to get me a job because I'd been arrested in Phoenix uh, for something, something else stupid. And he came over to my house in the bus. He wanted me to get in right then and there. And I didn't have anything else to do. He said, listen, man, I think you're super funny, but you're becoming the butt of your own jokes. We got to get you a job. And I said, yeah, okay. And he said, no, here's the thing. We're going to get on that bus. We're going to tour America and there's going to be no drugs, no alcohol and no women. And I said, well, I am not going. <laughs> Why would I ever get on a bus with you under those parameters? And I ended up going with him and he said, listen, by the time this is done, you're going to have a job back on radio because that's where you belong. And damn if he wasn't right. By the time I got to Philadelphia, I had a job on the radio. Well, it's beautiful that he was looking out. You know what I mean? That he was paying and attention. And he was looking out. And he was paying attention I'm, to what your life was like. He was. It, you know, I'll be honest with you because I love David Cassidy more, more than anything. But it didn't hurt that I was on the cover of all the Tiger, uh, all the uh, National Enquirers and things like that. I was a pretty big scandal when David came to my house in 1990. Right. So it, it was, it was not completely selfless, we'll say. No, it was not. And, uh, you know, we were talking earlier uh, before we started doing this about the dumbest things you've done uh, while wasted on one thing or another. And I got to tell you, the thing I got arrested for in Phoenix was triumphantly stupid. I mean, even in my world, and if you ask me, give me the top three stupid things you've done high, I'll be able to read them because they're big. They're big, stupid things. That's how I move. But this one in Phoenix, I went out of uh, my house to get some cigarettes around 2 o'clock in the morning, and I see this this woman who's obviously working. She's standing on the corner. And uh, I will that, that beat cigarettes. So I just pull up. I said something to her, and she gets in my car. I get about 50 feet, and I realize, 
Well, that's a man. <laughs> and, you know, I was raised in Hollywood. I didn't throw me completely. Oh, my God, you're a man. What's going to happen now? I just said, uh, hey, man, I'm sorry. I didn't understand the miscommunication to hop out of the car. And he wouldn't go. So I gave him two, even three more chances. And then I get over and I opened up his side of the car because I guess we're dating now. And I pull him out of the car and that's when I realized this guy outweighs me by 60 pounds. This is not some frail waif in the middle of the night. So we got in a fight. He lost spectacularly. I got my car to go home and the police pull up behind me and I think, yeah, no, I can't weather the transvestite fist fight story. I got to go right now. And I tried to run and they got to really high speeds and I didn't make it. And then I was back on the cover of all the inquiries. And then David Cassidy came and David dig this had to call the judge of my last case. I said, listen, I've got uh, employment for Danny Bonadici. I'll keep my eye on him. And he said, all right, David Cassidy, but you're responsible for Danny Bonadici, which just the weirdest thing in the world that David Cassidy is responsible for my behavior. Uh, and that was it. That's when I got on the bus and got the job. Everything turned good. I've heard, I've heard that story, and I had a few questions about it. My, my first Shoot. question is, how fucked up were you when you were going to get the cigarettes? What drugs were you doing that night? Uh, I think alcohol and crack, but I'm not, I'm not positive. I'm a real, uh, you know, I'm a lab experiment of drugs. So uh, I think I was really high. I think I was drunk. Drunk, by the way, for your listeners out there, trumps almost everything in being a disastrous thing to be uh, addicted to. So I think I'd taken a hit or two of crack. I definitely was uh, drunk. And here's an interesting thing. We got, uh, there's a silver lining to everything. Cause I was going to jail for five years over this, by the way. And, uh, here's the thing. I reached 124 miles an hour in a residential zone at four o'clock in the morning. And out of all the arrests and all the charges they piled on me, they flatly forgot they give me a drunk driving ticket. I didn't get any kind of ticket. I didn't get a speeding ticket. I got nothing. I think our audience is going to be jealous about that one. And my favorite detail in that story, I heard you tell it before, and you said you heard on the radio as you're fleeing the cops that you're in a high-speed pursuit, which is like my yeah. favorite. Oh, that's, that, that, that's my favorite. That's exactly right. I'm in the car. And by the way, I was listening to like a hip hip hop or something like that. So whatever broke into my radio had to be a really big event. And it turned out the big event was me going 120 miles an hour. See, I, I, in the nineties, there were a couple of hip hop songs that sampled the Partridge family, which was, yeah. a, which was a big deal for me. Like I thought that was, it worked. I don't know. I, I I'm a big, I'm a big believer in the Partridge family and I also just want to know, like, what are you whispering? You can tell me. Oh, I was telling my wife you should hear this guy. Oh, well, is it good or bad? Is that a good? Yeah, no, it's a good. I, I thought you guys would commiserate on being part of the traffic fan. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I mean, like, dude, I'm not crazy, but I, I, I loved when the Partridge family turned up in, in nice and smooth and turned up in other places. I just thought that was super fun and, and, I like those songs. Those are my high school hip hop songs, you know, hip hop junkie. Right. It's funny that your song was hip hop junkie, the, the hip hop song. Um, Is that the one it was, hip hop junkie? Yeah, yeah, nice and funky. Also, hip hop junkies with the bum 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 Exactly. Um, in that whole period, like when you, I, I also have a question about the Christian Brando. Like, yeah. what was the first drug you did with him? Do you remember? Like, I know that when I became a heroin addict, right, I became a stoner first. And I was this ridiculous stoner. And I, 
I basically smoked pot every day for like five years. And then I tried a little bit of heroin. I tried some pills and it kind of got integrated into my lifestyle. How did it go from, you know, drinking or occasionally using to becoming a self-professed crackhead or even just to be a cocaine addict in general? Like how did, how did it get to you? I will think, and, and, and this is probably, I'm living in a fool's paradise, which also didn't sample the parts generally, uh, that everything really went to hell. It started to go to hell with alcohol. Pot never did me any harm, except you know during the 80s, trying to find out money for it. Um, I, I would say the only time I went, oh my God, I'm addicted, I can't function, what am I going to do? That would be crack. Crack turned my whole world upside down. Do you remember the first time you smoked crack? Yeah, I do, actually. I was at my friend Dave's house in Canoga Park, and uh, we had uh, we were on the way over to kind of do an intervention, although this was a long time before the show intervention. And uh, I went over there, and I said, Dave, you have to come out of the house. You've been in here two weeks. You're not eating. You have to come outside. And he said, and he should burn in hell for this, but he stayed my best friend. He said, really, take one hit of this, and then I'll go outside with you. And I went, <sighs> Oh man, can we sell my car to get more of this? I mean, literally that fast, and it just stayed with me for for several years. And you know, they they talked about how cheap the high was. I did not see that. I saw all my savings go into it. Uh, I, I when they repossessed my house, any monies I had had in an account to to pay the rent or the mortgage or things like that went right to crack. Crack was the bad one for me. Was heroin the bad one for you? Oh yeah. Heroin was everything for me. Heroin. I just didn't do anything. You know, I, I didn't have any kind of life work, anything for, uh, I don't know, like almost 14 years. And, uh, it took having children for me to figure out how to stop, which is not any way I would rec. I don't recommend anyone to have children to stop doing drugs, but that's kind of how it worked for me. Thank God, you know, something did, but, uh, yeah, heroin, um, was everything to me until I realized it that's all it was and I was never gonna get anything else. And I just realized I couldn't afford it. You know what I mean? Like right. I, I also didn't have any I knew nothing was coming for me. I think that's a difference between a uh, a celebrity and just an ordinary drug addict. Like you could turn anything into a money making opportunity, right? Yep. That's it's funny that you say that. There was uh, in one of my arrests that were uh, really public, and I don't even know if it was my first, uh, but it was, you know, they'd say, uh, Bonadici, he can fall in a pile of shit and he'll come up with money in his teeth. And I felt, I didn't feel it so much at the time, but I, I look back now at all the, you know, you get in a fight with a transvestite in a high speed trace, you get it chased, you get arrested for crack, you get fired for being drunk. Like all those things have happened, and yet I'm still very gainfully employed. Totally. Well, you've managed to work through it and you've managed to use some of it for your career. Like when you punched the, the transvestite person, like, were you fighting then? Was that your thing then? Or did that kind of lend itself it into being your thing? Like, when did you start well, doing I martial was, arts? I, I was martial arts. That, uh, that's a, a kind of fun little story. I was set up, I'm about 12 years old and I'm set up to do a photo shoot with uh, Chuck Norris. The reason being, Chuck Norris has just been in Return of the Dragon or whatever it is to be Bruce Lee's next movie. He's in it. He has a big scene in it. He fights Bruce Lee, and there's some really intense moments about it. When it was over, and Bruce was such a big star, everybody went, well, let's make Chuck Norris a big star, which happened. It just didn't happen for another 15, 20 years. 
And they said, all right, let's get some pictures. And we'll make my heart throb. We'll get some pictures of him and Danny Bonaducci uh, at the Griffith Park Zoo or whatever the hell it was. And so we, we did it. And at the end of it, uh, Chuck said, you know what? Are you into martial arts? And I said, yeah, I really am. And he gave me a lifetime membership, not just to his school, but he had a school in Van Nuys. I think they called it Sherman Oaks back then. Uh, and that was the hardest school, you know, of all the schools. Cause a lot of it is just dancing. Really. If you ask, um, uh, Jackie Chan, what kind of style does he fight? And he says, I don't fight. I dance. Right. Well, this school fought and it was really good. And they fought hard. So he gave me uh, a lifetime and I stayed there through my first and possibly even second degree black belt. That's awesome. You know, I, I can't, yeah. I, I've never been able to fight for shit and I, my anger issues aren't like so pronounced. Like, where do you see, I don't know. I think that that is interesting to me. Like, you 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 basically you fought yourself out of so many situations. You know, I've I've heard. I mean, just on the Stern Show, how many boxing fights, boxing matches did you get into out of the Stern Show? Like, I, could- uh, I did all in all. I think it was thirteen. Or the thirteenth being Jose Canseco. And I got to tell you, that was that was a stupid thing. I was five foot six, one hundred and sixty five pounds, and he was six foot six, two hundred and sixty five pounds. It was just a bad idea. And I didn't win, but I didn't lose. They called it a majority draw or some such thing like that. I think, you know, they had some shenanigans because I don't fall down, but I get punched the hardest I've ever been punched in the ring by Conseco. So I think I had 13. Uh, I won 12 of them tied on the 13th. And here's the tough part. I knocked out four or five guys and they were wearing headgear and had 16 ounce or 18 ounce gloves. It's almost impossible to knock out a guy that's dressed in that stuff yet. I was able to do it five times. So all, all a good time for me. And through all of it though, you were using and drinking, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, my very, very, very first fight. It's a stupid one. Uh, was with Donnie Osmond. Yeah. And I'm driving into work on the, uh, the loop in Chicago, a very big radio station. And I hear, uh, Donnie Osmond's on and Jonathan Brandmeier, the disc jockey who hosted mornings said, uh, you know, do you, are you mad that Danny Bonaduce gets all the attention for being a bad kid and you don't get that kind of attention because you're such a good guy? And he said, yeah. And then Brandmeier said, do you think you'd fight him? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, do you think you'd win? And he says, yeah. And I'm thinking, shut up, man. You're going to get yourself in a situation you can't get out of. Uh, so they set up this big fight between me and I, and I went into that fight drunk. I mean, real drunk. And uh, there's a, there's a, people that would say Donny Osmond may have won that, and I could be one of them. They gave me the trophy and the belt, so they called me the winner. But he did an exceptionally good job. Why do you think you want, they gave you the, the, the fight? Well, we're in Chicago, and that was my town. I was on the air every day. Right. But, um, you know, I punched harder, but we had this ridiculous headgear that Everlast had sent us and had no strap underneath. So every time we got in the clinch, my headgear got pulled off. And it happened like six times in under four minutes. So I don't know that I would have given me that fight, but I was grateful that they did. But if Donny Osmond ever calls the show, you can tell him I think he won. I don't think he's going to call into Dopey anytime soon. Um, I, I couldn't agree anymore. He was, he was like one of your contemporaries, though. He was a child star. He was a, he was a 70s icon. Uh, were you friends with him prior to the thing, or were you friends with him after the thing? Uh, neither. I was, uh, I was like... What I am now, always, uh, <laughs> is when I met him, certainly in 90. And Donny Osmond was good and clean and fresh and nice. And, you know, we wouldn't have two words to say to each other. So instead, we punched each other in the face a lot. 
How did you, how did you deal with work? You were basically a functional addict alcoholic, basically. Yeah. Right? So like, how well, did, aren't we still in a way? Tell me, are we? I'm not, I mean, like I, I, I'm in, like, I'm not a functional addict because I never kept anything while I was using. Like I, I couldn't maintain work. I couldn't maintain relationships. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I needed to stop using everything to function. You know, right? But I, uh, here's the missing. It's just semantics. When you were talking to me, either before we started doing uh, dopey or afterwards, and you said, you know, he's a recovering drug addict. I'm a recovering drug addict, and just by definition, that I'm on your show, aren't you a recovering drug addict? Oh, I'm definitely a recovering drug addict. Absolutely, hundred percent. But no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm in functioning. I'm in functioning. Uh, I'm functioning now because I'm not using. You know what I mean? Right. Me too. Right. So like I, but you were functioning kind of, would you say you were functioning when you were using? Are you still using? Yeah, totally. Are you still using? I was never, um, I was never late for an appointment. I always knew my lines, although there were very, very few of them. Uh, you know, I didn't get a ton of work after the Partridge family. And then, you know, just cause I could maintain and I could walk around my reputation wasn't a secret. People went, this guy's in big trouble. He, he, he's high. He doesn't know he keeps going to jail. Um, so I, I could do any job that was offered to me, but very few jobs were offered to me. Right, right. Are you still using now? No. Oh, no, 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 no. When's Although it? we had a call, I'd be very interested in your p- opinion on this. We had a call today about a guy, he's a recovering drug addict, he doesn't take any drugs, he doesn't drink alcohol, but he wants to smoke pot. I told him one thing, what would you have told him? I basically say everybody should do whatever they want. Um, I, I know that I don't smoke pot and I don't smoke pot because if I smoke pot, I would never stop smoking pot. And then, and then I would, I'd probably start doing other stuff because my, my resistance would be low and I would be high all the time. And I, and my, you know what I mean? Like I'd, I'd start living that kind of lifestyle, but I, I'm sure, you know, people, I know people who say they're in recovery, uh, and have recovery and, and weed is part of their recovery and they're not shooting dope or smoking crack. Right. That's what I think after, you know, I couldn't talk to him for too long because we were on the radio, but that's what I, that's the kind of advice I gave him. I said, if if you feel getting high is going to lead you to other drugs and don't do it, but if you feel that pot is enough to satiate you so you don't have to take other drugs, then go ahead and do it. So that was my advice to this guy today. Yeah. David Crosby smokes weed and drinks beer and wine. And he says, really, I've heard that's a bad call. Yeah. Well, he, he said, he said what he said was, and it was on the Stern show. He said, I know I've beaten hard drugs, and the reason I know it is because I don't have drug dreams anymore. That was... Oh, okay. Do you have drug dreams still? Um, you know what? Uh, I, I have some. I more uh, get alcohol drinks, uh, drugs, and my our dreams are... My alcohol dreams are so uh, well-defined that I often wake up and think they were true. And this is the thing with me and my wife. I would say, I have to say is everything okay? And she would say, yes, honey, everything's fine. Cause I wouldn't know. I'd black out. And uh, I'm assuming you would do stuff you don't remember. I would uh, come home from getting drunk, the big one when I was in my last marriage. And I would try and hide alcohol outside. And I would just get so wasted. I would go out and I hadn't put it in any kind of bush. It was just sitting in the middle of the, uh, the driveway. So I am not a functioning alcoholic. I, and my drug dreams are pretty scary to be honest what kind of stuff uh a lot of jail a lot of uh fights where i don't do that well uh things like that uh a time or two 
dreams about uh, cheating on my wife. And I'll tell you right now, when you wake up and the woman is right next to you and you're confident that you must have done something bad last night, what is that's a scary few moments. Right. That's the craziest thing because you have the mind of somebody that did all this dirt. And then all of a sudden you're, I, I have that happen all the time. You wake up and you're not sure of what happened. And then you're so right, relieved, all the time. right? You're so relieved that it didn't happen. It's like the greatest right, so thing. Relieved. Um, I, I heard a bunch of stories that you've told about copping crack and, uh, they were too crazy for me not to ask you to tell the story about the guy who got shot in the head. Ghost was his name. Yes. And, uh, I'll remember that for forever. Uh, I was, they called it getting served when they'd give you a rock of crack. And just to make this all more disgusting, often it's not, they'd pull it from out under their lip where they had hidden it, and you would take it directly and put it under your lip. So it was really just a bad time, just dirty all the way around. So I got to this corner where this guy. Where were you? Didn't wait, hold up, me. hold up, hold up. Where were you copying? Uh,. Vermont and Melrose, Vermont and Pico, okay. about that area in Los Angeles. Okay. So um, I start. I got this guy, and he's noticeable. He's huge, and he wears this kind of army coat, and he doesn't rip me off. He doesn't take any time with me. I say $20 or a dub in the vernacular, yes. and he'd uh, give it to me, and that was it. I would pay him, and I would drive away. So I consistently went to this guy, and although obviously not his real name, uh, we got on a name basis. He called me Danny. I called him Ghost. And one day I was just parking my car across the street from Go- Ghost's Corner because you don't want to be right next to your car because they'll impound it. And I walk up to Ghost as I'm, well, I shouldn't have juggled, but it was just such an amazing, nasty thing. As I get mm, 50 feet, 20 feet, someone there away from Ghost, this guy just walks up behind him and blows his brains out from behind. Ghost never saw it coming. And I went, oh, my, oh, my God. And I got in my car, and I, I ran away, and this is how bad crack is, my friends. That was my friend. And I pulled back up to that guy within 10 minutes when he had taken over Ghost Quarter, and I bought crack from the killer. It's crazy. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, it is. that's a fucking crazy story. Um, I think, to be honest with you, I think some of the, and my, my friend Dave, actually, used to say, why do you go to these neighborhoods? Why don't you just buy some Coke from your friends and make it? And I said, I don't know how to make it. And the answer really was, I enjoy that part. There's a couple of parts that have happened where, you know, in retrospect, they're just so weird. I, I hasten to tell them because of disbelief. But one time, and this is in Philadelphia, years and years and years ago, I was cruising around the ghettos over there to get uh, crack, and I, I was getting it. And then one night, this guy acts like he's going to give me what I want. And then he grabs the keys to the car instead, pulls a gun and says, get out of the car. They go through my, my pants pockets. They take off my shoes. Then they say, take off all your clothes. And I took off all my clothes. You put your hands up. And they said, don't move till we're gone. And I'm sitting there in the middle of the street, stark naked in the full-on projects. And I got my hands up. And finally, this lady in the, in the building behind me goes, Put your hands down. They're not going to kill you. Go home. Just like that. And I did. Oh, by the way, they had thrown the keys really far. I guess that's so I can't follow too fast. And uh, I went and I put my clothes back on. And I got the hell out of there. Right, right. And it's and it was the thrill of the of the hunt. And, and it was the adrenaline of copping someplace you shouldn't. You think that's why yeah. you were going to these spots more than the convenience? Uh... I do. I do. I didn't think of it then. And when, you know, it wasn't a mystery what I was up to. And people would say that to me, like, you're going to get killed down there. Why do you go down there? I even had a cop ask me. Um, I was out on the corner trying to get something. Cop rolls up. Everybody scatters with me. And they said, uh, I don't know if they called me Bonaducci or Danny, but 
I, they may have said, I think they said Bonnici. They said, Bonnici, have you lost your mind? Every time we arrest one of these guys, they tell us, you know, Danny Partridge is down here. Every time. He said, don't come back to this neighborhood. I'll put you in jail. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and then, so like, because like, what is that? What is that where you're so famous and you're such a drug addict, like how how like how often are you getting recognized? Every time you cop? Uh, not every time. I look really bad by this point, but a <laughs> lot. And then you know, you talk about the projects in Philadelphia; they're just as bad as Detroit, but they're smaller. It's a small neighborhood, and so everybody by the end, you know, somebody tells somebody else, like nobody's recognized me, and then this guy says, "Do you know Danny Partridge comes down here to get uh, served with crack?" And then everybody knows right then and there. And were you smoking crack in the radio station? Yes, I was. Well, uh, in the men's room next to the radio station. Yeah, I sure was. So you, could they smoke cigarettes in there? Like it was okay to smoke. I think it was okay to smoke back then. I was I was a, a, a very small time producer when I was in my early twenties, and I was at MTV, and I would shoot heroin in the bathrooms in MTV, and I would shoot heroin in my little office. And I think I could smoke cigarettes in there. Did any, no one ever caught me. And I had another job like that where I would shoot up in the bathroom and I left the needles in a drawer in the public bathroom in the TV place. Did anyone ever catch you? Yeah, I got the guy still on the radio. Uh, he's on Sirius. His name is J-Bo Jones. And uh, he caught me and uh, reported it to the bosses. And I don't even remember what happened with that problem because I had so many problems personally. It was all, everything I had go wrong at, uh, what's the name of that radio? Uh, Eagle 106, everything that went wrong, it was me. Kind of, I, I told my daughter this one time, she was complaining about all sorts, and that's when he did this to me, and then this photographer did this to me, and then I had to fight with that guy. And I said, do you know what all of those stories have in common? And she took the bait and said, no, what? She, I said, you were there. Every time one of those things happened, you were there. Is there a chance this is your fault? And it was, you know, I'd heard it in some meeting somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and I thought it was a good thing to say. No, I think that's a, that's, that's the whole thing, right? That's the whole yeah. thing. Um, we are the things we have in common with our problems while we're using a hundred percent. Um, that was really well said, man. Well, thank you. Once in a, once in a while, I, I get it down. Um, now the saddest thing is like when it all rolled into, uh, the breaking Bonaducci show, right? That's when it, that's all went, the saddest thing. That's when it all went to total bedlam because I was doing, you know, I've been doing a bunch of research and listening to a few shows and, and reading what I could find. And, uh, and then I found that article in the times about breaking Bonaducci, you know, the article right. and like, nope. dude, it's a fucking sad article about the end of that show that, uh, and I, and I will take this out if you don't want me to say it on this show. Okay. So uh, what is it? It's, it said that you had like had a suicidal ideation and your daughter had asked you what happened. And you said you cut your wrist, like opening the garage or something. And then you just that's, not true. That's in, no, no, no. That's in the uh, ballpark of true. Um, the thing is, and you might know this from your time, though. I think heroin probably slows you down more than crack speeds you up. But I don't even, we weren't even doing a show. We were just, my uh, ex-wife and I were fighting like crazy. Right. And I made some point that a lot of boys will understand. I punched the windows in my house and they carved up my arms, not my wrists. But that's what people went with. And, you know, that story coming out is not by far not the saddest thing about the doing of that show. So what is the saddest thing? Well, uh, I'd have to go back in my memory because I've never seen it. Not one episode. I saw about 
two minutes because I couldn't help it. They flew me down. The show was really big in Mexico. And so they flew me down to Mexico to meet the guy that would be doing my voice in Spanish. And at first, I don't want anything to do with it. And uh, so I'm telling do this and do that and just that crazy, blah, blah, blah. And then they show the scene he's going to be dubbing on the screen. And it was me jumping out of a moving vehicle and screaming about something. So I don't even know that that's the saddest moment, but I just know that I've never seen the show. Right, right. Well, I think you were also on steroids at the time, right? Yeah. And that, like, that's, and the, that's the beginning of it going crazy. Uh, I had a gym in my house, a guest room gym, and I would go up there and I, I just recently started shooting steroids. And so I can hear the crew. They've never been there before. This is their first day. And uh, they said, uh, what are we doing? And I thought to myself, is this a reality show or is this a fake reality show? It's a real reality show. And I said, come in. And the second they got in and started filming, I got myself a shot in the ass and they went, Oh my God, what is going to happen here? And that was not by far the weirdest thing I did on that show. That show got crazy. (laughs) What was, what was the, first of all, what was the craziest thing? And then I want to know about what it's like to be so on steroids. Like, is it like being on drugs, but what was the craziest thing on that show? Well, shooting up on the very first episode is uh, is probably one of them. Right. I got some news I didn't appreciate. I was in the back of a limousine with somebody, I don't know who, and they said, oh, at your wife's party, they're going to have a bunch of strippers. And I don't know why I cared. I don't know why that was even remotely interesting. And I said, pull this car over right now. And they didn't. And so I opened the door, and we were going. We weren't going that slow. We were going pretty fast. And I just jumped out of the car, got pretty hurt with road rash and things like that, and started walking off screaming things into the night. I didn't even know where I was going. I mean, that's fairly high up there. But it, it was, like I said, it was all weird. Uh, there was one night, and I was just drunk, I think, that, uh, you know, Terry Nunn? No, but tell me who it is. She's in the band... Um, uh, Berlin. She had a lot of shows, a lot of songs for uh, Top Gun. Okay, yeah, 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 famous yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I know what you're talking about. Yes, yes, yes. My wife at the time is on stage, and Terry, who is one of her friends, is uh, uh, watching. And I think this is the time. I'm I'm going to hit on Terry Nunn right now. And I don't even remember what I said. I got back to the wife somehow, and I said, "Oh my God, what I say to her?" And my wife at the time said, "She couldn't understand you. You weren't speaking English at all." And well, this is, I tried to pick up on a rock star. I tried to pick up on a friend of my wife's and I didn't speak English. This is a bad night, even for me. Right. And, and in that period, were you still doing Coke or smoking crack? Uh, I was saying kind of anything you got me, but mostly, and this is why I say when alcohol gets a hold of you, it's as bad as anything else. Cause right. I was drunk through that whole show. And what, and, 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 you know, a through line that I'm seeing in terms of this anger, punching windows, jumping out of moving cars, you know, fighting, like how, like, where does that come from? You think, uh, you know what? I, I don't know. My dad was a fairly violent cat. Uh, but he would also just put on these operatic shows of anger and scream and grit his teeth and things like that. And when I look back and I think that, like when we did the wrestling show with Hulk Hogan, uh, we had to adopt some characters and I'm doing this thing and I'm going to beat you and I'm going to do this. And I remember, I'm looking just like my dad. So I might have to say a little of it comes from my dad. Totally. Totally. And do you think how, like, as some, like are steroids like a drug, like do being on steroids, is it like being on Coke in some capacity? Does it change the way you think? Well, it, it changes the way you do 
everything. I was doing a big, I guess they call it a schedule. And uh, my ex-wife was really upset about this. She didn't want me to stay, uh, take steroids. And I'll give you a couple of things there. One is you're shooting up straight testosterone. Now, my testosterone had the picture of a rhinoceros on it, and it was from a, a vet- veterinarian. My b- fat burners had a picture of a racehorse on them, and they were also not meant for human beings. Uh, and so they were the, there's like there's no high that I can really re- recollect, but everything is just so different. You can do things you couldn't do six months ago, and I mean by a lot. Um, and the other thing is, like, you're on te- a testosterone, my my wife didn't like being intimate that much anyway, and now I'm knocking on her door constantly. Come on, I love you. Let's do this. Let's do that. Come on, let's have uh, let's make love. And I think she saw it was one of the big ways to punish me was to say no. And it's real unfortunate to have a uh, testosterone hard on and no place to put it. Right, right. Did you stop taking steroids before you got sober, or did you keep taking steroids after you got sober? Uh, I think I got sober after I started taking steroids. So what I'm saying is like, were you clean? Like when you stopped taking steroids, were you still drinking or were, or did you? Yeah, totally. No, I I was still drunk through almost all of it. Right. So did you notice the difference? Like, like, do you think about steroids at all? Like, does that interest you at all at this point? It introduces, it interests me because I'm kind of fat and sloppy right now and you don't have to be. I mean, people say, you know, you still have to go, if you have some big muscle head that's on roids and uh, that you ask about it, he goes, well, you still have to go to the gym. Nothing will happen for you if you don't go to the gym. That is not entirely true, but I guess what he was saying, and that's the thing we asked are they a drug and I got real violent, but I'm a real, you know, I was anyway, a real violent guy. Nothing seemed that different to me. Until I see pictures of my face, and I, I didn't realize this, your face is just covered in muscles. And when you blink and when you smile and all that stuff, all the muscles get bigger and shredder. I don't look anything like, uh, like I do right now at the height of my steroid use. It's just this weird, strange face. Right. And do you think it, do you think it contributed to the anger, though? Because that's like the, the myth of steroids is roid rage and all that stuff. Well, I'd have to say yes, because of the repercussions to my behavior. It didn't feel like that to me, but anybody that saw what I was before taking steroids and what I was like during steroids will say, yeah, man, it made you a little more angry. I saw you, I saw you on a, it was a YouTube clip of you on CNN, right? And in the clip, the lady is talking about addiction. You were talking about addiction and, and alcoholism. And, right. and you say to the lady, do you know what cured my alcoholism? And you pull out a bottle of antabuse and you say this and you take an antabuse pill in the CNN interview. And then and then and I think I said after that, I think if I drink alcohol now, I'll die. Yeah, it'll turn into formaldehyde and I'll be dead. <laughs> you know, basically, dead. do you want to see that lady from CNN? Um, (laughs) and Dr. Oz took me up on that. Dr. Oz asked me if I'd come in and talk about being sober. And I said, yeah, I would. And, uh, he by the way, for your listeners that don't know what antabuse is, it is, it will produce the world's worst uh, allergic reaction to booze, maybe more than that. But I mean, it burns, it hurts your eyes and things like that. And Dr. Oz did an experiment. He goes, well, here is alcohol. And I said, yeah, and he put some stuff into a big uh, beacon, a beaker. And he said, now, now this is that abuse. And the whole thing bubbled over. And I thought, oh, my God, that's happening inside me. Right, which is terrifying. So, so 
was that how you got sober through ant abuse? Yep, absolutely. I mean, I go to meetings. Uh, I talk to sober friends. Uh, I try and hang out with people who are sober. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know what I'd do without the ant abuse. You know, I don't think I just drink immediately, but I think no good would come from quitting ant abuse. So you still take it? Yeah, every day. So tell me, how did you get sober? What made you want to do it? Like, what was the end of this ridiculously prodigious alcoholic addict career? You'd be surprised in this scenario. I'm 61 right now, and I was probably 52 when I had a drink, and it was my last. So just about 10 years ago, and what it was, a couple of things. You know, uh, usually when you do something stupid and nothing has come of it, you go, oh, well, it's no big deal. Uh, I woke up in the morning to go do my radio show and my wife was gone and she no indication as to where she was. I'm starting to freak out cause I don't know where she is. I don't know what caused her to not be in the house when I, when I wake up. And then I realized I'm late for work and I just run out the door cause I'd obviously passed out my clothes, run to work. And the producer says, you can't go on the air like that. And I said, like what? And he said, well, first of all, you're slurring. And I said, well, I'll take care of it. Don't you worry about it. And he goes, go into the bathroom and take a look at yourself really kind of nasty. And I go in there and I look and my face is just covered in blood. And to this day, I don't know exactly what happened. Uh, there were metal edges on my coffee table, but I was also on the second story of a house with no banisters or anything and, and a lot of stairs. So to this day, uh, I don't know exactly what occurred, but when my wife did come back to, I guess to get her thing, she was really mad. And I said, give me one more chance and that will never happen again. And I did it again, but within, it had gone so badly within six or seven months, I did some more begging and that's when I started taking the abuse, and that was the last time I had a drink. So it was, it was those fights and did you stop and did, was the, did the using stop as soon as the drinking stopped? The not using got a whole lot easier when I wasn't drinking. The only way, you know, I would. Uh, although I don't know that Seattle, that's why they now has the tough neighborhoods where you can just score crack on the streets. But, you know, to go out now, to go out there in the mean streets, wherever I would be, and go up to a stranger who probably has a gun for his own self-defense and say, hey, man, do you uh, want to sell me some crack? I can't imagine doing that. Right. Well, if you did it, you know, I mean, listen, the one thing that I've noticed from you is, is in the shows that I've listened to you on recently, you sound happy. You know what I mean? I am happy. Thank you. And you sound happy now. You know what I mean? Like I hear lightness in your voice and we both know that if you pick up crack, you know, that lightness and that joy is going to fucking go away. Oh, so fast. So crack is just a brutal drug. I think much like heroin, it takes effect so fast. You're a different person so fast. And like I said, just in my current state of sobriety and happily married and the owner of two lovely cats, I just can't imagine going out into the streets and buying crack. The, the other morning, right, I, uh, I've been going to work really early. I work at a deli in Manhattan, okay? And we were doing this— uh, You work at Katz's, right? Yeah, I work at Katz's. I do. Pretty good gig if you can get it, man. Well, I, I'm desperate to get out of it, Danny. I'm desperate, oh. to, <laughs> desperate to get out of this thing. But no, it's a great job. I've worked there for 13 years. Um, and I, I kind of do catering for them and special events and this and that. I waited tables there for 11 years. Okay. I got sober there. I got high there. I was a fucking disaster. Um, right. But uh, I'm walking to Katz's yesterday morning at 7 in the morning because we're actually going to 
right outside of Philly to cater a thing. And, uh, and, and on Houston Street and Broadway at 7 in the morning, there's all of the, the methadone people. And they're all meeting right. kind of a couple blocks away because they score there. Like a, a, a dealer comes through and they, they probably buy, you know, Xanax and they probably buy heroin and maybe they buy some crack. But they meet there every morning at that time. Usually I'm there an hour later and I don't see them. And, I'm, and I, I almost have six years and I don't think about using ever. Like I, I do this show, but I don't think about using. And uh, I often think that there's a good bit to do with these addicts on the corner, like stop and record something with my phone and do a voice memo with my phone and, you know, ask them what they're doing and what the worst I think thing. you're right about that. I okay. think that would be riveting. Yeah, I think. But so like I reach into my pocket, right, to take out my phone and all of a sudden I get that feeling inside me that I could ask them for drugs. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah. think about that. Like, I don't think about that on my day to day. But yesterday morning I took out my phone and all of a sudden I knew that I could just say, oh, could I get a Xanax or, oh, I'll take a bag. You know what I mean? Like, just it was weird. It wasn't even like it didn't make any sense. And it was like I saw the, the, the dark side of myself for a second. It was scary. You know, I don't even know how to explain it, but it was, uh, it was weird, you know, and that's what being a drug addict I think is. And you think you have time and you think you're safe and you're doing the next right thing and all that shit. And then just one second, it's like, it goes the other way. Yeah. And you can make that mistake in just one second. And then what happens, right? Then it's like, you can come back, but like, chances are you're going to go down some road. Yeah, and you might be going down that road for the next seven years. You know, you don't, you just, nobody wants, and I don't know, I don't know, you know, the uh, demographics of your show, but I will tell you this whether you uh, are recovery or you're just wondering, should I take drugs for the first time? No, no. Listen to to me and Dave. We're reasonably educated people, and we're telling you straight out it's a life record, record. You can't, you can't live the life you think you are going to live on any of these drugs. Well, I appreciate you saying that. It is a life wrecker. I appreciate you coming on this show. And I've, I've heard you tell a lot of crazy stories. Um, it was weird. I listened to you on Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, right? Yeah. And, uh, and he opens up the show by telling a story of you and him having sex with the same woman in an alley. Um, yeah. Did you remember that story when you agreed to do the Colossal podcast, or was it just like he dropped it on you? No, it uh, uh, both, really. But here's the thing on that, whether he hadn't informed me or anything like that. So what? There is not a story that you have heard. You're, there's not an arrest you can find. There's not a, sex, a sexual liaison that you can mention that's going to hurt my feelings or damage my reputation. I have one of the world's all time worst reputations. I don't know how I keep a job, but no, I, he certainly didn't tell me about that, but it's one of my fondest stories. I tell it all the time. It's hysterical, hysterical. You know, I'll tell you something about Gilbert Gottfried because he was one of the early podcasts that I did. That guy was so informed. I couldn't believe it. Like, I've known Gilbert Goddard. That's a pretty intimate thing to be only a torso away from another guy. So, as you know, Gilbert and I know each other uh, pretty well. I was shocked how much time he had put into research to do a podcast with me. It was, you know, pretty impressive. It was awesome. It was awesome. Um, why do you think Howard doesn't have Gilbert on anymore? Um, I think, and where when you say this, what was the last time you thought Gilbert was on? I have no idea. I haven't heard him on in years. 
Okay, uh, then I don't know. I would say a falling out, but Howard doesn't have some of the main guests and hangers on that he used to. Howard has had some some kind of a, and he is shocked and appalled by his own behavior on his own radio show, talking to his own friends and embarrassing them and making them squirm. Uh, he is, you know, with years and years and years of therapy, he has come to the point that he wants to be the real live Howard Stern, and maybe Gilbert Godfrey did not fit into that. Right, they were so funny together. Um, I have another question about your recovery. Like they talk about a psychic change, right? From when you're yep. fucking totally out there in the, in the mess to having a nice life. Do you feel like you had the psychic change? Do you feel like people discount your psychic change because ant abuse pay, played a part of your story? Uh, no, I don't, I don't know uh, if that's the case. Sometimes I think it, but I think it and then think, don't go off this drug Ever, no matter what, no matter what people say, no matter what you feel, no, if you feel your sobriety is cheapened and you should make it better by doing it just on your own, don't do it. I'm so sober. That's what counts. That's the only thing that counts. And, uh, you know, there are some people that, uh, yeah, there are people in, in uh, recovery that don't take paid meds after the dentist. Right. That's crazy. Right. Right. No, I hear you. Um, I, I'm not like that either. I, I, I used to take, uh, NyQuil every time I couldn't sleep, which might not have been the right. right thing to do, but some people were shocked and appalled. Like people who get really sick will never take it, you know? Right. No, I do know. And that's, what is it? 25 proof or 25%, whatever it is, there's a boatload of alcohol in NyQuil as well as other drugs that can give you a little bit of amnesia the next day. Like what happened? When did I take that? Uh, so I, you know what? I say whatever medicine makes you better in the sense of cures the common cold, take it. Uh, if you go to the dentist and he says, here, take these painkillers, although my dentist, actually, no matter how much pain I'm going to be in, and I have extensive dental work, says Tylenol and Tylenol 3. That's what you get. That will do. And it does, you know. And anytime I want to go begging around drugs because I'm allegedly in pain, I've stopped my pain with Tylenol 3. Now I just want drugs. And luckily, it took a while, but I don't ask doctors and dentists for, uh, for you know, a Vicodin anymore. When's the last time you wanted to use? Uh, do you mean anything, including alcohol? Sure. An hour ago? Is it really like that? Uh, it's not like that too bad, but uh, I was far out in uh, uh, the boondocks of the state of Washington, and I had to come back, and I came back and I passed you know, really nice places to drink, like dive bars, big fan. But give me an Applebee's, give me a, a Red Robin, and I, my heart races. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, literally an hour ago. All right. Do you still do meetings or no? No, I, I, I don't. And not because I don't like them. I do like them. They've become too long with the traditions. It's now time for the first tradition. It's now time for the seventh. And it's just a lot of people talking about things that aren't drinking. Right, 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 right. I hear you. Danny, I cannot thank you enough for this time. You've been incredibly generous. And, and, it's, and, I, oh. I, I, and I, I'm happy to hear you're sober. Like, I didn't, real, I didn't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's hard to, to find that out because, like, I think you told a story on, a, on one of those shows about Hulk Hogan and he said, uh, he asked you if you were sober and then he handed you like a, a like a, a bucket of Vicodin. And, and I couldn't tell, I couldn't tell in that story if you were sober now. So I was like, we'll see what happens with this thing. Um, well, I, I got to tell you, Hulk is a good friend of mine and we met doing promos for our different reality shows. I had the, this disaster breaking by the and he had Hogan knows best or whatever it was. 
and we're doing a thing. And the joke is, it's we're playing the theme from the Odd Couple. And if you remember in the Odd Couple, uh, one Oscar throws a cigarette or a cigar down the floor, and the other guy, Tony Randall, picks it up with an umbrella tip. Totally. Well, we did the bit there, and I flicked the cigar out of my mouth, and Hulk goes to take this uh, giant beach umbrella out of a table at a restaurant, and it doesn't come. It sticks. So he picks up the whole table and does the bit. And I thought, that was awesome. So I'm talking to him, and he goes, uh, are you sober now? And I was, as a matter of fact, at the time, but it didn't, it didn't last. And he goes, how about pills? And he just hands me a bunch of Vicodin, which I immediately took. And, uh, you know, they're not as fun as they used to be. But, yeah, that's, that's a very true story. And Hulk is off those pills, and I am off those pills. Well, good for you, man. And then the most fucked up story. I can't resist making you tell this one more. Can I ask one more? Sure, yeah. And then I got to run. All right. The, 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 the most esoteric story I've heard of yours was the Marine World story. That's oh, wow. Don't you think that's like, I mean, in, in Europe, I mean, I guess you have a ridiculous number of stories, but the Marine land story, Marine World story was just the weirdest, almost bordering on animal cruelty. And somebody could have been <laughs> killed in that story. All right, first of all, Mr. Man, I was 10 or 11. I think that whale jumping out could have verged on child abuse. So I guess we all have a different look at that. I will tell you what happened. So we're doing um, this thing. And it's at Marineland, but it's actually a place called Marine World that is now defunct. And we're doing shots. And the whale has to jump when Shirley Jones says this line. And it's behind her. She can't look. And she says the line and the whale jumps. And this kind of thing goes on all day. And then I realize at some point, I know the hand gestures that will make the whale jump. So it gets to be that night, and I sneak out of my dressing room. We're all staying on the set, and I sneak out of my dressing room, and I start doing the hand gestures. And sure, I am 10, and a whale is jumping in the air because I tell him to. I am the master of all I survey. And I continue to do this till the whale won't do the trick anymore. Why? Because they feed it after each trick, and I did not have food. So eventually the whale stopped doing it, and I went back to my dressing room. The next day, they're doing their live show. It's not a party or anything. They're doing the live show. And one of the trainers gets on the whale's back to do the bit where they ride it around the tank. And instead of riding around, the, the whale goes to the bottom of the tank with a trainer on board. The trainer pops up gasping, gasping for air, I say. And the whale starts nudging him and making big splashes with his tail. And so everything is over. Everything's safe. The, the, the trainer has lived. And I go out to do it that night and do it again. And they catch me. And they kick the whole Partridge family out of Marine World. I was shocked. Who kicks the Partridge family out of anywhere? Where I don't know if you know this or not. We're the Partridge family. Dude, you're tampering with a fucking whale, though. It's a whole, it's yeah, a whole yeah. other, it's a whole, it's a killer whale, right? An orca, right? Yeah, no, it's a real one. I'll tell you what, my friend, because uh, I like your style. Please have me back on the show because I got another dozen stories you may not have heard yet. Well, let's do it. Let's do it. I'll, I'll, I'm booking you in advance. Danny, uh, thank you so much. You were a joy to talk to. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Dave. Right I now. had a great time. Thank you very much for having me. Cool. Bye, buddy. Bye, Danny. Bye. All right. So that was Danny Bonaducci. You know, I was, you know, I don't get intimidated most of the time when I interview these people, but for some reason, I don't know if it's the Howard Stern connection or if it's the fact that I watched the Partridge family as a kid and that in some way he's this de facto rock star or that I was scared of him, that he could burst through the phone and, and beat me up because he's a, a fighter and everything. But 
I was a little bit intimidated by Danny Bonaducci, but I thought he was a lovely, sweetheart of a guy, and uh, hopefully he'll come back on the show. I have to say that he was just super cool and warm and kind and generous, and most importantly, super honest about his story, which is like the most important thing any dopey guest can ever be besides being incredibly dopey, which of course he was. I should have asked more about Michael Jackson. There's a couple things that I really wish I had asked more about, but we can always circle back. We will circle back with Danny Bonaducci. Please share your thoughts via email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Record a voicemail. Send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear about what you think and uh, your thoughts on the show, your thoughts on the Bonaducci interview. I like to hear your thoughts on where Dopey is at in general. And also, fucking Dopey Day is right around the corner. What is, I should have told Danny about Dopey Day, but Dopey Day is coming up. It's Chris's birthday, which is August 16th. And what we're doing is what we're doing, what we did last year, which is having everybody put the Dopey logo over their eyes in solidarity to support Dopey, to, to support Chris's legacy, to end the stigma of drug addiction, and to let our freak flag fly. Fuck it. You know what I mean? Also, as important as putting up a picture with the Dopey logo over your eyes. And there's people in the Dopey Nation like Scott and Dan who will do it for you. So join the Facebook group and contact Scott Wick or Dan Allen, and they will do it for you. It's also, if you're an artist and you want to be part of this Dopey Street Team, Dopey Day shit, what we want is art in a public space celebrating Dopey, celebrating Chris, celebrating ending the stigma of drug addiction and being part of the team. So like fucking, if you have any questions, if you want to be a part of dopey day, write me at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. But I want to continue on with my story about weed, Jose, my love for Dominican culture and, uh, and the stuff that we go through on the job. So me and Jose just did another gig. And we did a gig over the weekend in the Bronx with his compadre. And compadre, if you don't know, it means his best friend. It means you're the godfather of his child, right? Yeah, that's definitely what it means. So are you Noel's compadre or is he your compadre? He's my compadre. So your son, he's your son's godfather? He's my, my wedding's, the best one of my wedding and my future kid's godfather. Future? Yes, sir. So who's the past compadre? There's none. There's never been that much love. You had no other compi until this one? Well, I had my compadre Ratata. No way. Was he, was he, is he a padrino or no? No. It's called because we have much love for each other. Now, I never talk about Dominican uh, Spanish on Dopey, but tell the Dopey Nation how good I am at Dominican Spanish. It's great. It's great. You're definitely a Dominican Jew. And we're hanging out and... and and me and, and Jose's compadre, Noel, would, used to get high together. And Jose is very jealous that he never got high with me like Noel. Definitely, I'm jealous. I am very, very mad at that. And Jose split the dead A bud with Noel. And after the Bronx gig, they say, yo, Dave, we all parked in this shitty fucking garage in the Bronx. And they're like, when we're done working... Let's pull up some beach chairs and we're going to smoke a blunt. 
And I'm thinking, like, I'm thinking I'm cool. I'll, I'll pull up a beach chair and smoke a blunt, too. And, uh, I mean, I wasn't going to smoke. I was just going to pull up a beach chair. And uh, we get to the parking garage, and uh, you tell. When I pull up, my compadre puts up a big one. No, big blunt. So we're there. We're going to sit down. Well, obviously, we didn't think Dave has a chair. So he goes. The first thing he comes out with a big, big, this big beach chair. <laughs> Ready to go. No, this guy doesn't smoke. That's the funny part about it. But then, but he's willing to sit down. But So we sit down. We're talking. And I spark it up. All of a sudden, I guess Dave wasn't strong enough. And he says, well, I got to leave. I said, what you got to leave for? He That's says, not what happened. What happened was he pulls out the blunt. He's like, he's like, Dave, could you hold the blunt for a second? He gives me the blunt. Then he, like, pulls out some nuggets. And he's, like, fucking around. He's like, he's like, yo, I think I need to roll another one. So you have them both rolled before you smoke. And then I was like, what am I doing? I was like, why would I think this is a, a move that I should be making? Hey, it's a day-day bud, bro. You had to try the day-day bud. I can't try any bud. So I packed up my shit. I wished. I, and he left. I, I think I was strong and not weak. Ah, you was weak. I would have stood there and watched. Been like, what do I need to watch you guys get high for? Because we would have been talking shit. Listen, all of you people in recovery out there who might have a, a love of marijuana, propensity for stonerdom, and you're in recovery, I do not recommend hanging out with stoner Dominicans. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. That shit can test you. <laughs> It tested you? I passed the test. Right. No, you didn't because you left. Listen. How was your way out of the test? The way that I would have failed the test is if I smoked. No. Which is what you wanted me to do. No, no. You would have passed the test. You would have done what we did today. Oh, yeah. Tell them that. Oh, yeah. How we were smoking and you was right next to me. And you didn't care. Well, Jose needed to get high before the job. So he fucking... He's like, Dave... I gotta go. I gotta go smoke a blunt before we go. And I'm like, okay. And he runs upstairs. He's like, wait, I forgot this thing. And he runs downstairs. He's like, fuck, I'm not gonna be able to smoke a blunt before we go. And I'm like, just smoke it in the car. I definitely did. And you was there. You see, you was that was strong for me. You didn't say Jose pass it to me or nothing. I didn't see it. I was straight ahead. Well, well. You should try this more often then. I don't think so Anyway, so my, The moral to the story is What they say is If you go to the barber shop You're probably going to wind up Getting your hair cut Or if you go to the tattoo parlor You're probably going to get A tattoo So if you hang out With Dominicans smoking blunts Chances are you're going to Hit the blunt Which I didn't do I passed the test You say I'm weak I say I'm strong And we say Stay strong, Dopey Nation Jose, what do you say? Stay strong Stay Not with Dominican people But stay strong Gracias so seriously, like that was my my week, and and I I love Jose, and and I I love stoners, but I I like I don't want to be smoking pot, I can't be smoking pot. I didn't smoke pot with them, but it just shows me the nature of uh, of how fragile recovery can be, and I'm realizing like I'm super stressed out, but I've been putting myself in situations that are scary. You know, between dealing with, you know, stoners at work and and even more so that thing on Houston Street that I was talking to Danny about. It's weird. Like when I'm feeling vigilant in my recovery, it doesn't occur to me. Like I don't want to get high. I feel safe. I feel like getting high is a million miles away. But when I'm in front of a group of drug addicts who are about to cop and all of a sudden I know that I can cop, it's like it turns on and it's such a scary feeling. And I'm sure a 
A bunch of you guys know what I'm talking about. And that's why I have to like not stop to record them for Dopey. It's crazy because that's like the recovery 101 moment. And I don't find myself in it ever. And then when I do, it's like, holy shit. You know, I might have six years or I might have 60 years. But when that thing pops up again, it's real. And, and, and you might think you're a different person than you were when you were out there, but you're not, right? It's crazy. Speaking of being out there, uh, I've been getting a bunch of really, really good dopey voicemails, and I want to play the latest one I got. It's from a young woman named Jessica, and it's a crazy acid story. So here you go. So this was around 2015. Um, I had just gotten put on probation for assaulting a police officer in a drunken blackout, which is a whole uh, another story. Um, so it was my first time dealing with any legal troubles. Um, and uh, I had to stop smoking weed. I had to stop, you know, pretty much doing everything. Um, and I ended up meeting this guy, and um, my mom nicknamed him the Irish Leprechaun because, or the, the Gangster Leprechaun, because he was a ginger and he had spent like three years in state prison. And I don't know. It's, he he looked like kind of like fighting Irish guy meets heroin. Um, so anyway, I'm dating this guy, and I thought that he was like also sober because he was on state parole. And, um, you know, I come to find out he's not, he drinks sometimes, whatever. And, um, since I had to pee in a cup at random, the only thing we could really do was, was eat acid. And that's kind of how we got close. Um, we would get spun and, you know, have sex cause sex on acid is amazing. But, um, anyway, so yeah, so we're dating and then, um, around probably, December 2015, January 2016, um, we started doing dope together. And not only that, but we were going to and from Jersey every other day to pick up a sleeve, pretty much. Um, a sleeve is 10 bricks. For anyone who doesn't know, a brick is 50 bags. So we were picking up pretty much like anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 bags of heroin every week. Um, very dangerous. I do not suggest it. Um, so we were super strung out and like, even though we were strung out, we still liked to do hallucinogens. So, um, we got some acid this night and we had kind of like gradually been like eating more and more. I was kind of testing the waters on my psyche to see like what I could handle. And, um, so I probably ate like five or seven hits and he probably had about the same. And, uh, his his friend, whose nickname, ironically, was Sleeves, that he had been in state prison with, um, Sleeves had left a crossbow in our apartment, and I took the crossbow and I sold it to my cousin for $100 because I don't, I don't know, I just did. And, um, and so we're tripping, um, everything's fine, I decided to take a bath, uh, so I'm in the bathtub, Danny's sitting right at the right at the edge, right next to me, um, and he's smoking a cigarette, and the cigarette ash gets real long, and then it falls, and everything's, like, I'm tripping really hard, everything's weird, 
so he looks at me and he's smiling and he goes, you know where that cigarette ash went? And I, I was like, where? And he goes, right down my sleeves. And as soon as he said the word sleeves, it was like the whole vibe changed, like fucking completely, like everything just got dark, terrible. I started freaking out. I got immediately out of the tub, completely naked. I thought sleeves was hiding in the walls with the crossbow trying to kill us. Um, so I'm running around. Danny's like, what the fuck are you talking about? You sound crazy. So then I think Sleeves is trying to kill us. But then it switches and I, I think Danny's trying to kill me. So then I'm like, get away from me. Blah, blah. And also we have a handgun somewhere and like hidden in the sea. We had a drop ceiling. So hidden in the drop ceiling somewhere is like this, this gun. So I made Danny strip down completely naked and I made him get the gun. And uh, we also had a roommate at, at this time. Our, our friend was living in the room next to us. And like, this was like after I was like definitely past midnight. And we were just like screaming, freaking out, crying. By the end of the night, it was me and him in the bathroom, completely naked, just embracing each other, crying and telling each other how much we loved each other. It was an absolute shit show. One of the worst acid drips I've ever had. And, um, yeah, I mean, I ended up strung out off heroin with that kid for probably another couple months before I cut that shit out. But, yeah, that's my story. That's a crazy tripping story. I don't remember ever having sex on acid, so I think... I, I love the fact that they decided that they would do acid because it wouldn't come up when they got drug tested. That's, like, serious drug addiction. If you guys have a good, dopey voicemail that you think can top Jessica's... Email it to uh, dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Cormac. I want to give a shout-out to Jeff Rhodes, who recently celebrated 47 days clean. I want to give a shout-out to Dominic Baldini, original dope, fucking dopeycon attendee. It was his birthday a few weeks ago, and I missed it. So happy birthday, Dominic. Be a part of the show. Send in a fucking email. Write a review on iTunes. Chris lived, he loved and lived for those iTunes reviews. My dad needs iTunes reviews, and I need iTunes reviews. But please make sure they're positive. Leave a five-star iTunes review on iTunes. Fucking join Patreon. Help a brother out. Keep the dopey flowing. Get me out of this fucking job with all these stoners. And uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation. And fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I wanna take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by. And I wanna see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I wanna be be so good, so bad, so bad, I want to be good so bad, 
bad desires all I ever had. And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand. Shadow's getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand. And I wonder would they pay it any mind when I leave this busted city far behind. I'll take the high road, however far it winds, because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find, and I want to be good so bad, want to be good so bad, so bad, I want to be good so bad, bad desires all I ever had, damn it, all these suckers make me mad, and it's all I ever had. It's all I ever had, and these suckers make me mad, and I want to call my dad, and it's all I ever had, 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 and these suckers make me mad, and it's all I ever had, and I want to call my dad, and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had. But before we go, I want Jose to give you a crash course in uh, in Dominican Spanish. What you want me to say? What do you want me to say? Come on. Okay. Give, give all the basic Dominican uh, Spanish phrases. I don't know. I don't know. Like if you see someone, what do you say? Hola, ¿cómo tú estás? That's not what you say. Que lo que. What else do you say? Dime ve. What else do you say? Dime. Dime lo que fue. Dime ve, manin. Manin. <laughs> you ever hear my manin joke? No. All right. When they say manin, I always thought they were saying manin. Sometimes they say my, my knee. knee. They say my knee. So, yo, me and my knee went rollerblading, and, yo, my knee got fucked up. So what happened? <laughs> That's my dumb Dominican Spanish joke. My knee got fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> what else? You like that? You like that one? What other, what other uh, Dominican... What is another Dominican phrase that most, peop- most Spanish people don't use? Oh, it's primo. What about Diablo. Yeah, demonios. That's a Dominican thing? Yeah. So, like, here, come here. Come here. When you when you say Diablo, like, how many different reasons might you say Diablo? A lot. For example? Like, if something goes fucked up, you'd be like, Diablo. And if something, like, what else? Like, when you fuck up at work, I'd be like, Diablo, demonios. <laughs> what else? Um, you see, like, a hot girl, you often will say, Diablo. What else? And it stinks too much. <laughs> what do you say? Diablo. All right, so that's that's another one. What's another Dominican colloquialism you can think of, right? Your wife is thinking of one. What are you thinking of? No, I was laughing because the one I was say. Anything else? Nothing? No, I don't believe that. All right. We're not in the moment. That's it. And of course, Diablo actually means the devil. So why do you say why do you say Diablo when something bad happens? Because it means like the devil was in there. It's like what, we, what do we call Laka's ma? It's like what do we call Laka's madre? It ain't no mom. So what he's saying there is in cats is well, the, you know why they do that? Why? They when 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 somebody needs potato pancakes, they scream into the into the uh, intercom, Necesito una madre. 
Um, we, how the hell did that started? I don't know, how did we come over? It started because the white people on the back counter that knew that madre was a word that they knew that the guys in the back knew. And that was the thing they needed more than anything else. That's my belief. I think that's what Faye told me years ago. I don't know nothing, man. Yeah, not like me. <laughs> All right. You guys got nothing else. That's it. That's my Dominican lesson on Dopey today. <laughs>